Hi, I'm Sean O'Mara. I'm a publicist and author of The Apology Impulse. Welcome to Why Everybody Hates You, an audio support group for reputation professionals. If you have any responsibility for how people talk, think and feel about your organisation, then you are in the right place. My name is Daisy Powell-Chandler, and today I'm speaking to Sean O'Mara, publicist and founder of digital consultancy Essential Content, about The Apology Impulse, the book he co-authored with Professor Carrie Cooper. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for joining me today. Why are we all apologising so much? Pleasure to be here. Uh, I think the short answer to that is social media. The act of apologising has, I think, become a little bit degraded since brands decided it was a good idea to get on Twitter. Um, There is a longer answer to that, and it ties in with uh, crisis planning, um, kind of general corporate habits, and uh, a few other things. But the, the short answer, the snappy answer to that question is, when you commit to social media as an organization, you commit to a higher degree of accountability, um, a ridiculous degree of visibility, and you effectively commit to saying sorry to anybody and everybody. And the brands and organizations that do it the most are the ones that haven't thought about how to deal with feedback properly. And they think that Uh, when they're criticised, the only option they have is to say sorry, which isn't true. So what are the other options? Uh, The the thing I would advise most clients to do when they deal with online criticism, um, it's it's either going to be private via email or it's going to be public. Uh, So the first thing they need to do is decide if they are in the wrong. Um, and there is a process for doing that. You look at, uh, obviously, the law. You, you, it depends what you're being criticised for. Um, so you start at the top. You go, right, have we broken any laws? Have we done anything that is demonstrably terrible? Uh, in most cases, no. And then to decide whether you need to apologise, you, you compare your conduct, the reality of your conduct, how your conduct is perceived, and you look at your own policies and your own values. and if they're out of whack, you've done something uh, that may not be illegal or you know against um, the regulator, but doesn't doesn't accord with your values as you stated them, then I think you should consider giving an apology. But most of the apologies we looked at in the book were uh, reflexive. They were the, the consequence of an organisation that. Uh, didn't have a plan, didn't understand that you can, instead of apologising, you can explain. And I think that's where the gap is at the minute. The the sheer volume of apologies that we're seeing now, um, we, we actually measured them. And the average month, a big organisation, you'll get at least one big organisation apologising every day. Most of them, I think, were the result of not having any other options or feeling like they had any other options and actually being scared of um, having to put out flames 
on on social media. So uh, companies, organisations treat an apology as a kind of um, it's almost like a nuisance payment where they think, right, if we just issue this uh, small check, this this person will go away, and it's it's never how it pans out. So why did you decide to write a book about apologising? Well, I'm going to give credit to a client, actually, called Kiwi Movers. They're based in Wandsworth. They're exceptional. Um, And obviously, I'm no longer their publicist, so that is completely honest. And we had a situation where the director of this company rang me and said, we're being criticised on social media. Uh, And I said, okay. And I was already sort of drafting an apology in my head before it even told me what the problem was. Um, There was a problem, but the problem was that this customer hadn't really paid attention to what he was told at the start. So he was trying to move some expensive tools from the UK to New Zealand. And when you're a logistics company, obviously there are a lot of moving parts and you're relying on other partners and third parties. And it explains to him quite clearly you're responsible for your customer's declaration. We can't do that legally. Um, you need to do it. You need to fill this bit of paperwork in. We can help you do it. You've got to be the person who signs it and sends it off. He'd, he'd not done it properly. And all his tools had been held up in customs at the destination. So he's over there in New Zealand. He's waiting for his tools because he wants. He's, he was a very niche uh, tradesperson. Um, and he had special tools and he'd gone over for a job couldn't work was losing money was flipping out and decided he was going to criticize my client so when they told me i started writing the apology in my head and i said to the the client okay here's what we should do first thing first let's think of how to say sorry and he said well we haven't done anything wrong and i don't want to appear like we have i said well that's not how it works it's social media we've got to say sorry and he said well I don't want to, it's not my fault. And he, he actually was, he overruled me and he taught me a very valuable lesson or two, two valuable lessons. If you, if you care about the word sorry, you ration it because it's like anything. If you, if you keep issuing apologies, they lose value. Um, so he taught me that pretty quickly. Uh, and he did actually say, if I apologize now and then I need to apologize properly in future, it's, it's going to lack sincerity. So he taught me that. And he also made me realize that when you don't say sorry, it's actually quite rare that anything bad happens, which is a good lesson for any publicists. It's not the end of the world if you don't say sorry. However, we are all apologizing more and more. How can we repress that urge? So the first thing you need to do is, depending on the situation, if, if you're in charge of communicating on behalf of a brand uh the first thing you need to do is take a deep breath because the spotlight effect is is a very powerful bias and i think we all suffer from it when you know you're being tweeted at by let's say 20 people who are upset about your advert and one of them's got a blue tick it, it can feel like the world is about to collapse all around you so take a breath because the thing to remember is it's also happening to probably 100 different brands in that moment on social media. Um, look, look at what's happened. Actually try and assess your culpability really coldly and try and detach yourself and say, is this something I would get angry at this brand about? And then if, 
so that there becomes a fork in the road where you're either sorry or you're not. You've either done something wrong and you want to repair the damage, you want to protect your reputation. And if you're, uh, you know, apologizing sincerely, you actually want to give some degree of comfort and reconciliation to the person you're apologizing to. Um, people forget about that as well. There is a victim when you apologize. So if you've done something wrong, you want to take that path. If you haven't done something wrong, you need to stand firm. It's your obligation as a professional communicator, I think, to protect the integrity of the apology. So if you're one of these uh, brands that is apologizing every other week for something, and they do exist, you're part of the problem, I think, because apologies aren't notable anymore. And part of that is because brands just say sorry as, as a kind of uh, PR throat clearing exercise. Whereas really, the apology should be reserved for big, uh, important situations where you think, yep, we've messed up. We do owe people an apology. Let's get it right. And let's then focus on making sure we don't repeat the thing that we're today apologizing for. So what does a great apology look like? Uh, a great apology is uh, it's brief. It doesn't contain lots of what I would call waffle. Uh, and that's quite broad. So I'll describe a bad apology and then I'll remove the elements of a bad apology and you'll have what's left over is a good apology. So one of the key habits that we identified in the book was this evasive type of language where brands were sort of copying to it, but not quite. They wouldn't really speak to what they'd done. They were more apologizing for people being upset about it. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg is the undisputed champ of this kind of apology as well. So he would say, instead of, right, we here's what we did wrong. Here's what we're going to do to fix it. We're really sorry. He would say, well, we missed the mark or we got it wrong or, you know, we misjudged this. And people hate that. Consumers hate that kind of language because it, it just feels like it's come from a, a boilerplate of um, weak, woolly language. So don't say we missed the mark. Don't say um, we didn't live up to our, our high standards because a, you're not in a position to talk about your high standards because you're apologizing, so you've clearly done something wrong. Say, here's what we did. So um, KFC ran out of chicken, for example. We, we ran out of chicken. They didn't miss the mark. It wasn't a, a logistics issue. You ran out of chicken. Just call it what it is. So a good apology is frank, it's to the point, and it centers the victim. So a lot of bad apologies are they tend to be inward looking on the organization and they'll talk about their values, they'll talk about their commitment to X, Y, and Z and how on this occasion, this is a, always, it's always a rare um, exception. It's always, oh yeah, we're usually really good at this. We care about the environment. This, um, you know, getting caught, you know, our emissions being fudged. Um, I'm not gonna sort of say who it was, but everybody knows who it was. That this was just a small aberration of our otherwise exceptional environmental policy. Um, you don't get to talk about your environmental policy when you've been busted for, um, you know, manipulating your emissions data. So 
take the opportunity to relieve yourself of the need to talk about why you're great. Because a lot of organizations will take an apology as, oh, here's an opportunity to talk about our commitment to whatever it is they're being criticized for. So a lot of times, um, an apology actually starts with, we are dedicated to, or we are committed to, and then, but. And you know there's a but coming as well. So my favorite example of that was a, um, was a company out in Canada that were responsible for analyzing drug tests and they were subcontracted to by the government. So it was for um, parents um, and courts. So the court were mandating these drug tests to say, okay, is this mother still dealing with a drug problem? Is she can can she keep her kids so it was a theory it wasn't uh, have you been smoking a joint before work it was are these people uh, capable of parenting or do we need to take their children away from them and this drug testing company has made quite a lot of errors and a lot of children have been separated from their families based on these false positives now that that to me is a disaster for the families, for the children, uh, for the courts, and for this company. The CEO of this company still found time to talk about their high standards, their commitment to, you know, you can imagine what the apology sounded like. At no point did they say, right, we've ruined lives here, and, and we need to figure out how, how to make sure it never happens again. There was none of that. It was all, we've got really high standards. This is a rare failure. And those, those are the kind of apologies that stuck with us when we were writing the book. Uh, you know, some, of, some bad apologies you can forgive, but those where there was obviously no understanding of the impact of what happened. It was, all right, we've got a PR problem. We need to just remind people that usually we're great, but this time we messed up. And yeah, it, got, it, it started to grate on us when we were writing the book, that kind of language. It's not just the subject matter of the apology either is it it is literally the language in some cases yeah yeah it is um what you would find as well is the the amount of jargon that people manage to get into their apology the best one actually my favorite was a runway excursion incident so what do you think a runway excursion incident might be? I feel like I'll be cheating because I have read the book. And so I know <laughs> that this isn't okay. just a little holiday or perhaps a school trip onto the <laughs> runway. No, it's when a, it's a plane crash, really. It's, uh, the, the, the most charitable description of it would be a minor crash landing. Um, it is aviation terminology, but it's, it's, that's how they record the ways planes crash. I think if your plane has crashed, the, the kind of nuance around it isn't as important as the, um, the fact that you've, you had one job, which was to land the plane, and it didn't quite work out. So there are a few scenarios where, I mean, this wasn't a fatal plane crash, but if you're on the plane, and as, as was the case in this scenario, you are dangling over the Black Sea while the plane is at the top of the cliff with its nose pointing down. Runway excursion incident doesn't quite cut mustard. 
aviation is particularly bad for the jargon, isn't it? I think there's another example yeah. in the book about um, an unauthorized takeoff incident at Seattle yeah. Airport yeah. where someone literally stole a plane and yeah. Yeah, fighter jets were fielded from several yeah. states and it was, was yeah. quite the crisis and eventually crash landed onto an island, all very dramatic, yeah. and it was an unauthorized takeoff. An unauthorized takeoff, and the other one is uh, passenger reaccommodation. Oh, which... United! Oh, yes, yeah. Um, Oscar Munoz, he he was he's like the star of our book, and I ended up feeling sorry for him. And Professor Carrie Cooper, who I wrote the book with, also commented, "Are we, are we being too harsh on this guy?" And I don't think we were. I don't think he's a particularly flawed communicator he just happens to be ceo in an industry where there are there is no minor hiccup if you're flying a, a tube of metal through the sky things things can't go wrong um consumer anxiety is i was going to say sky high then but cringe so i'm going to say <laughs> it's, it's extremely high um Airline passengers, as consumers, are in a natural state of anxiety. From the moment their alarm clock goes off in the morning and they know they've got to get on a plane, every, everything is tense. You, you're not relaxed. So when things go wrong, it, it feels bigger than it is. Um, and that can apply to you're a bit late getting through security or you know the person who checked your little packet of liquids was not necessarily as polite as it could have been. These things all add up. So by, by the time you're on the plane, anything going wrong feels like a big deal. And as an industry, and it's, it's, it's not necessarily their fault, but it's just a nature of what they do for a living, flying planes. You, you can't afford to use that kind of language. Um, it belittles the experience of the consumer. If the consumer is delayed, um, that's inconvenient, it's stressful, and it can have a knock-on effect on other things. If the consumer is dragged out of their seat by security guards and they end up covered in blood, screaming, and camera phones pointing at them, then describing that as a passenger accommodation is misleading and also a little bit insulting to the customer because that's not what they experience. So go back to your previous question about what makes a good apology, I think frankness and directness in talking about what you did wrong is really important. And the kind of jargon that gets slipped in there, um, it, it kind of, it looks like they're trying to disguise what happened by using this kind of woolly language. You also make an interesting point around passive language and making yeah. things sound almost as if they they were victimless. So mistakes happened. Yeah. People may have been inconvenienced. You might yeah. experience some delays. It's all very um, bloodless, but also humanless. We've taken the people out of it. We've taken the person who is blamed. Mm -hmm. I thought the example of the Oscars, and instead of saying, yeah. we got this wrong, we made a mistake, it was very much mm. a mistake occurred, an incident happened. Yeah. The wrong envelope was given to the host. Yes, not we gave the wrong envelope yeah. to the host. Yeah. Um, it's, it's my personal uh, bugbear, as a, I guess, as a writer by trade. Um, 
when when this book came out, I sent an email to my old school um, because I remembered a lesson on using the passive voice from year 10. And Mr. Atkinson, who was my English teacher, um, wouldn't probably describe me as a, you know, star pupil or anything like that. But he, he did say at the time, I think you get it, Sean. I think you understand why this is important because we did an experiment in the classroom and it was confess to something using the active voice and confess to something using the passive voice. And he gave us all a thing that we'd done and mine was I'd spilled a drink. So I remember saying, oh, I've spilled a drink on the carpet. And then the next one, the drink was spilled. And at that moment, I realized how sneaky the passive voice is. So I sent him, he's long retired, uh, but I wanted to get in touch and just say, I remembered that lesson. And I also wanted to let my English teacher know I had a book published because it was my English teacher. Um, and he emailed back and he was pleased to hear from me and all the rest of it. But that lesson, if I could um, repeat that lesson, if I could just sort of transplant that to classrooms around the world and just say, if you're a communicator, that's your job, just never, ever use the passive voice. I can't think of many scenarios where it's preferable. It doesn't. It doesn't really add anything. I think the only cases where it's preferable is, you know, with technical language where you don't necessarily know what the agent is. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a sneaky trick. And anybody being apologised to, do not accept the apology if it's delivered in the passive voice. If somebody says mistakes were made, drinks were spilled, feelings were hurt, that's not an apology. I hurt your feelings, I spilled a drink, I made a mistake. That's how you do it. You, you take ownership of the failure. And by doing that, you also go some way to acknowledging the, uh, the damage or the pain that you've caused to the person you're apologising to. Which might mean that you then avoid much worse repercussions down the line, presumably. Um, yeah, uh, I think people, one of the reasons that apologies are so bad and I think one of the reasons people use that kind of language is because they're scared of getting sued. And they should be scared of getting sued, but not because they say sorry. Um, it's actually in, in our law in the UK and in American law, depending on the state, um, there are provisions. It's, for the UK, it's the Compensation Act, I think, of 2016. It's actually a campaign at the minute and it's called the apology clause, I think, to help uh, legal affairs and lawyers understand that it's a myth that saying sorry is an invitation to litigation. So I remember it when I was learning to drive and people used to say, if you ever, you know, ever ding somebody, never say sorry, because that's an admission of guilt. Um, and the same kind of theory has is, is found its way into boardrooms and, and legal teams. And it's not true. Saying sorry in the UK cannot, it can't be used in court, I think I'm right in saying this, as an admission of liability. Obviously, you can be sued for the thing that you said sorry for if you did it. But the very fact that you apologized isn't in and of itself proof that you were liable. And it's the same. So America is a good case study because it's state law rather than federal law. And there is a roughly 50-50 split between the states. And it applies to medical malpractice. So in some states, 
if you say sorry about your nose job or you know whatever that is an admission of guilt and in some states it isn't and in the states where it isn't uh people apologize more so medical practitioners apologize more but they get sued less and they tend to settle on average for less uh in terms of the actual um financial outcome and the people who conducted these studies think it's because actually litigation is a function of the absence of an apology it's not that people are sitting on their bed thinking well he's messed up my procedure i'm going to sue him i just need to wait for him to say sorry so i can prove he did something wrong they're sitting around thinking he's messed up my procedure and i want him to come and apologize and if he doesn't i'm going to sue the arse off him and that's that's where we've got it mixed up so lawyers are to blame for a lot of the bad apologies because they they will obviously check it before it goes out and they say well you can't say that don't apologize for that use the passive voice here and it's just become a, uh, a norm now that we think oh we've got to apologize so we better flip to the passive voice we better use vague language and that's why people are really unhappy about the quality of their apologies. And we've talked a lot about the bad examples, and there are plenty more in the book, which mm. I hugely encourage people to read because it's horrifying and excellent. Who's doing this well? Uh, General Motors are um, they're on the good list in the book. Their CEO, uh, Mary Barra, I hope I've got a name right, um, she gave an exceptionally good apology, and she's actually apologising for something that happened before her tenure as CEO. It was a, it was something. It was kind of a no-brainer. They had an ignition switch failure in some of their cars, which was causing people to die in car crashes, which is obviously a bad outcome if you're a car maker. And the thing that she included in her apology was the phrase, "We never want to forget this." Now. That's notable and important because a lot of times companies think we need to move on from this. So they want to apologize and they want to move on. And the fact that she, she then baked that failure into their corporate culture going forward, they said, right, the re there is a reason this happened. Uh, we weren't on the ball with quality assurance. Um, you know, she, she did a proper sort of um, overhaul of lots of their corporate structure and their processes. And it was all because she said, I don't want anybody in this organization to forget how badly we failed. And that is now our culture. We, we can never repeat this. So her apology was really good. Um, JetBlue, um, I would credit them as the originators of the social media apology. Um, it was the first time a CEO had gone on YouTube to say sorry. And it's still, the video is still up and it's, by today's standards, it's really low tech. It's the CEO sitting in front of a, what I presume is one, like an early digital camera. He's a little bit too close to the camera. He's, he's, there's no editing. He's just sitting there fumbling around with, uh, he's got like, um, he's got his staff pass in his hand. It's, it's very off the cuff, but it was a sincere apology. And the, the reason it was a good apology is it came with um, what they called their consumer bill of rights. So one of the ingredients of a proper good apology is an offer of repair. So you say, we're sorry we messed up. Here's what we're going to do to fix it. Um, that offer of repair 
contained within it an admission that they would fail again. So he said, next time you're delayed by an hour, this is the compensation you're going to get. So that was good because he didn't say our planes are always going to be on time from this day forward. We're never going to annoy you by being late. He said, well, yeah, we are going to be delayed because we're an airline. So here's what we're going to do. If you're delayed by an hour, you get X. If you're delayed by a day, you get Y. Um, and that kind of set the standard for what is now a really common thing. With um, and I think it's been ruined personally with um, CEOs, you know, with like soft focus and emotive music and, you know, all the language and, you know, we let you down and all the rest of it. This, this I would encourage people to go and find it. It's on YouTube. I think his name is David Neilman, the guy that founded JetBlue. It is a proper sort of, you almost end up wanting to hug the guy. He, you can tell he's sorry. He's sitting there. He's really sorry. He knows his company has failed. And it was all to do with the blizzard. And they just weren't operationally prepared for the knock-on effects of this blizzard. And that I think there was like a thousand planes grounded over Valentine's weekend. So it was you know, a lot of angry customers and they had to deal with it properly. And another thing that's important about that apology is they took their time. It didn't just send out a tweet within the hour. They, I think it was about a week. And they looked at what they'd done wrong and they did some self-reflection. And they said, right, here's how we fix it. What are the lessons we can all take away from today? The first is to stop making promises that we can't keep. Don't promise the train will always run on time because you will disappoint people. Second, have a plan for when things go wrong. Not just a full-blown crisis plan, but one that includes minor messes and medium embarrassment. If you don't have a plan and the spotlight falls on you, it will feel as if saying sorry is your only option. But it isn't. In fact, when bad things happen, the first step should be to decide whether you are actually sorry at all. Did you do anything wrong? Did you break the law? Did you break your own policies? Did you contravene the values of the company? If you didn't do any of those things, then you probably shouldn't be apologising. Instead, you might want to consider an explanation, or even saying nothing. If you are in fact sorry then take time to decide how sorry you are and what you're going to do about it. The best apologies explain what will change as a result. If you can do all of this without resorting to jargon or dehumanising legalese, then you might finally have mastered your apology impulse. That's everything from us. A big thank you to my guest, Sean O'Mara, co-author of the book, The Apology Impulse, which I heartily recommend. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll join me in two weeks' time when I'll be interviewing Nick Baird of Centrica about why everybody hates him. To make it easier to remember, why not find us at whyeverybodyhatesyou.co.uk and click subscribe on your favourite podcasting app. I would also be really grateful if you would leave us a review if you get the chance, as reviews help new listeners to find the show. Thank you for listening to Why Everybody Hates You. And remember, you are not alone. Listener.